0: Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 258, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This episode is their best practice when it comes to setting up your student's desk. Have you ever tried the L-shaped pod? We discuss. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, our expert guest examines whether or not we're teaching science in the most effective way stay with us Hello everybody, Nick Ortega here and I'm joined by a friend chief academic officer as well as co-host of the Class Smith podcast Dr. Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today?
1: I am amazing today.
0: Yeah, why so? What, what's so great today? The weather? The
1: sun is shining. January 2024 is nearly over, and I just don't feel an ounce of complaining in me.
0: That's good. I like your your theory on that. That's a, that's a good attitude to have, and um, hopefully that continues all the way through the end of this school year.
1: I certainly hope so. It's a, it's a good feeling.
0: All right, so today I've got a topic that some of you might find basic but some of you might find like, you know, sometimes you got to go back to the basics and talk about the basics. Um, And uh, I was reading through Edutopia recently, and there was an article about the best, most helpful way to arrange the student's desk in the classroom. Have you ever put that much thought into it? Is this something they teach at school or you talk to your teachers about?
1: There's a lot of thought that goes into it, or should I say, should go into it. We've had many discussions about it. It's tied to classroom management, building relationships. But not only that, being able to be accessible, having close proximity is so important to keep kids
0: engaged. Close proximity to the teacher or close proximity to their classmates?
1: Well, both. You want to be able to move in and out of aisles or tables, desk as much as possible. Um, kids having their eyes on you while you're talking, you're capturing them like an audience. But at the same time, collaboration is so important. So I think that having students accessible to one another to be able to discuss and problem solve is also critical.
0: Well, so back in the day when you were um, in the classroom on a daily basis, what was kind of your favorite method? Or did you change every year and try different things?
1: Well, I changed based on the activity or the lesson. Um, If we were taking an assessment, that was pretty much the only time that I did straight rows. Um, That's to keep everybody focused. You don't want any cheating going on. But I rearranged my room all the time for collaboration, small groups, for pairs, um, in a huge circle, if we were going to have a discussion, it just depended on what we were doing, but it moved and changed all the time.
0: I remember like coming in some days as a student and some days we'd be in rows and one day we'd be like in a giant U or then we'd be like in pods, right? And as a student, you're kind of, you're not really thinking about the fact that the teacher is thinking about that, right? Like, but there is, there is a method to the madness, right? Mm-hmm. So, wh- what do you think? Like, is the best for group work? Do you think like little pods?
1: Oh, absolutely. Where four tables or chairs, should I say, um, can turn into and and become small groups. And it just depends on what type of furniture you have. Some classrooms um, deliberately have tables so that they're always um, arranged in a way to be able to collaborate. But then you just might not know where your seat will be. It could be um, that they're randomly called, randomly pulled by numbers. Sometimes kids are grouped in colors, they're grouped in group names. Sometimes it's based on how you respond to surveys. Um, and other times, obviously, it's based on ability so that differentiation can happen. But to me, to keep kids on their toes, that's a skill. To to show up daily and not know where you're going to sit or rather what type of activity you're going to do is exciting.
0: Wait, so when you say abilities, do you like think through that this student is good at this, so I'm going to put them next to this student who's maybe not as strong in that spot?
1: Well, yes, in the very beginning, if you do learning inventories, then you find out who will work well with what are the types of personalities. But after that, it should be your um, progress monitoring data. So you'll know which kids pass which standards, where their strengths lie, who can help whom, um, how they learn, whether you're going to have to have a visual group, auditory group, or if it's just about the different types of activities, how you level them. Um. basically based on the rigor. So there's just so many ways to do it. But I just love seeing the eyes light up when they walk in the classroom and try to figure out what's going on this week.
0: <laughs> I, this is why I love talking to you because I haven't even like touched the article. <laughs> that- that i brought to the table you're you're basically a walking article of your own perspective and view so oh, i appreciate like that i appreciate Thank that you. but i'll tell you what um the gentleman who wrote for Edutopia said and he was basically making the argument for what he calls like little l's if that makes sense like as the letter l like the capital l and so in his logic was when i group them in pods, and they're all kind of like facing each other. Yeah, that's great for group work. That's, that's what I want. But then I find when I, you know, quickly flip, and I start teaching a lesson, half the kids backs are, are facing me, right, no matter which yeah. side of the classroom you're in. So he's making the argument that if you do L's, it's like, you still have little groups. So it's like, let's just say two desk is one part of the L and two more desk is the other, the vertical part of the L. And so they're, they're still in a position where those four people can work together. But then they also are all facing or at least have a visual can quickly easily turn to see the educator when they're teaching the lesson. So I, I
1: absolutely know. love it. I mean, it seems basic, it.
0: but you know, it is it is an interesting perspective. Um he also but basic
1: is great because why make it complicated?
0: Right, exactly. Um and, and he also makes the argument he says by assigning, as we you were just talking about, by assigning similar skills and strengths at each location for each of the L, he said I could easily shuffle groups for sharing and brainstorming or, like, cross-pollinating ideas. He said students in one location could rotate the L clockwise while students in the other could rotate the L counterclockwise, and instantly you have new groups with ideas
1: well, I like the L idea, and I'm going to have to share that in our next two new teacher
0: academy. Yeah. So that's it. That's all I got. It was basic. I know it doesn't seem like a whole lot, but I, I just kind of felt like, all right, we should have a quick discussion. Like, what's the best way to but lay you? It to said run?
1: that's all you got, but that is huge. Teachers are always looking for effective strategies to keep engagement up and to produce greater learning outcomes. Great article you selected. Yeah,
0: well. I'm going to direct link to this article, um, and he actually draws like diagrams. So if you're like trying to listen, you're like, oh, I don't get it. Like, what's he mean? There's going to be a diagram. You can dive into it and uh, read the full article on his L idea. Uh, Christina, are you ready for today's bright idea? Let's go. Our guest in today's Brad Ideas segment is going to help us examine whether or not we're teaching science the right way in the classroom. Melanie Tresik-King is an associate professor of biology, also an active speaker and consultant, and the creator of the Thinking is Power website, which is thinkingispower.com. Today, she's helping us understand what science is all about and why students should care about science. Melanie, welcome to class dismissed.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to be here.
0: Hey, this is great. And I want to kind of put you on the spot and ask you a question uh, or give us a grade, if if you will, um, on how the United States is doing when it comes to teaching science. Do, do we get an A or a B or what?
2: Uh, that is a hard question. I'm going to say that it's a difficult thing to know, in part because there's so many different ways that we're teaching science. But if you go on the measures of science literacy and compare them to other countries, we are not doing very well. But I would also take a bit of an issue with those measures themselves. In that what they usually do is they ask people things like, um, how many days does it take the earth to go around the sun or um, which is smaller, an atom or a molecule. And those things are really interesting, but um, they're, they're facts as opposed to how the process of science works. So that was a roundabout way of saying, I would say not very well.
0: Okay. But if I hear you right, you're saying maybe we don't need to teach so much science facts even though it can be interesting, but maybe we should instead focus on how we get those science facts.
2: Yeah, I mean, we carry access to basically all of the world's knowledge in our pockets. And so to me, the question is, when you need knowledge, can you find it and use it to make reliable decisions? I personally, I, I came to this and I was teaching uh, intro bio for non-majors, you know, like when you don't want to be a scientist when you grow up and you have to take a gen ed science. Most people take biology. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm not going to name names here, but the, the most popular textbook, the most widely used textbook in the United States has about 800 pages. And in the first chapter, there's about four pages devoted to the process of science and everything else is like really interesting factoids, but honestly, who can remember all that? So to me, the more important aspect is how did we learn that stuff? Because science changes.
0: I remember I mean I'm a few decades out of K through 12 education but I remember you know they, they did teach a little bit of facts but they also taught us how to do our own science experiment I mean is that enough or is that just scratching the surface of what you're saying
2: Yeah I would say scratching the surface because again like in that that example I gave with the four pages on the process of science um most of it is the scientific method and I'm air quoting here you can't see me but um in the the scientific method it's like a recipe where you start with an observation, and then you make a hypothesis, and then you design an experiment, and then afterwards you did a science. Um, but the problem with that is most science doesn't actually work that way, or a lot of it doesn't. And so, um, to me, when we're even talking about the process of science we're feeling, because w- the science itself is a community of experts that are collecting and evaluating evidence. In as many possible ways as they can think of. And so, um, when that evidence converges on a conclusion, then that one is, is more reliable. What I find, because I teach, but I also do a lot of science communication. What I find is when we don't teach people what science is as opposed to what it learns, and they think science is a set of facts that have been proven, then their standard for what is science can, um, it's not very accurate, and then they can fall for things because they don't understand the difference between science and pseudoscience. So I suppose the bottom line for me is the process is infinitely more important than what we've learned through that process.
0: Okay, so if I'm an educator and I'm listening to you, and like I heard you say, you know, yeah, there's the scientific method, but there's more to it than that. I mean, what, what should a middle school science teacher be trying to teach their students then?
2: This is such a hard question because, um, you know, we've asked our educators to do more and more with fewer and fewer resources. And um, they have exams that they have to teach to and and they're judged, they're they're graded on whether their students do well in that content. Um, And so... As far as all of those limitations, I I really wish I had a better better answer. But for me, the recipe labs in particular are really a disservice. They um, are—I hear constantly from students that, "Well, I didn't get the answer that the teacher wanted, so I changed it," or they told me it was wrong. And you know, that's not how science works. We learn from our failures too. And Mm -hmm. and labs where there's not a right answer. Um, to me, are are more valuable. I can give you an example if you like.
0: Yeah, that'd be fantastic.
2: One of my favorite uh, activities to do with students is uh, it's called the Checks Lab. Um, and I will give you the, the information on where to find it. it there's an updated version with the, the email app. But the basic premise is um, there's this family that lived in a house for a very long time. And when they left, they left behind a series of checks. And uh, your job in this class is to use those checks to come up with a story about what happened to this family. So there's a total of 16 checks. And you put them in an envelope so that the students can't see all of them. And then you say, okay, randomly pick four. And so they pick four and they come up with their first explanation or their hypothesis. And then, okay, how confident are you? Pick four more. And then they do it again, update their hypothesis. They probably learned something new that they didn't know before. There's probably irrelevant information in there as well. They're trying to make sense of it. Okay, pick four more. So they get a total of 12 of the 16 checks. Okay. And at the end, you ask the students, okay, what happened and how confident are you? And they get really excited about this. Like, what is going on here? And the the brilliance here is that um, different groups with different um, diversity can mm-hmm. see things that other groups can't. For example, um, one of the checks is to an OBGYN. And I've had groups of all male students who have no idea what that is. Or there's a check to Circuit City. And if you're not sufficiently old enough, you might not know what that is.
0: I used to love Circuit City. so
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, So uh, the diversity helps them see things and then interpret it in a different way. Well, at the end, they've seen 12 of the 16 checks. They really want to know what happened. Okay, well, get with another group. Tell the other group what checks you found, the evidence that you have, and the conclusions that you drew from it. So they do, and they see that other groups picked different checks, probably got different ones, right? And didn't get um, them in the same order. And they had different perspectives from which to evaluate that evidence. And it's super fun. And they they have a great time to figure out what happened. And then at the end, they all want to know well, what happened? What is the answer? And I love this part because I'm like, you know what? I don't know. All I know is what you know. I have the same evidence. I've drawn different conclusions, uh, but there is no right answer. At the end of an experiment, a scientist doesn't get to like, okay, well, what's the right answer? Tell me. (laughs) All you have is the evidence you've collected and your ability to reason from that evidence.
1: Mm.
2: And so um, it's uh, showing how science doesn't have to involve experiments. There was no experimentation there. It was just historical science. That diversity matters. That um, uh, science is always tentative to a certain degree. Uh, so labs like that, ex- these exploratory um, labs that get students to think through evidence, to me, um, help students see the process of science, I suppose, in a more representative way.
0: And fine. I, like, I like that. Because, I mean, so many times you hear a scientist building off of older science, science that may have been decades before them, right? But they wouldn't be able to do their experiment today if it weren't for something that a piece of evidence or something that came out of a science experiment years earlier. Um, And I guess what you're trying to say is, or you're eloquently saying actually, that students need to not so much worry about learning about science, but just the whole critical thinking process and how critical thinking works in science. Exactly.
2: Exactly. And so my definition of science literacy would involve not just knowing what we've learned from science, but how that process of science works in its lots of different forms.
0: You are kind of emphasizing, I guess, the idea of a science community in that particular example you gave us, correct?
2: Yes. Um, so Naomi Oreskes has a wonderful definition of science, and it's the one that I, I like the most. Um she has a great book called Why Trust Science, and um, she tried to figure out what it is that science scientists are doing and um, why science is reliable, like why should we trust this process? And what she came up with is science is whatever scientists are doing, but what they all have in common is that it's a community who are collecting and evaluating evidence in a variety of different ways and the more diverse perspectives in that community the more diverse methods that they're using the more they stand to get closer to the truth
0: that's good i like that so let me ask you this i mean so much like i'm out of school um i don't work with other students or anything and the word that's that drives me crazy that i overuse but i think we all overuse is the term the word research right? Like, oh yeah, I researched that. Like, and what do we really mean, right? Like we Googled it and we found something that confirmed whatever we thought before in this massive world we call the internet. And I guess I'm saying that to say like, should we be teaching students how to properly research in a scientific way rather than just Googling?
2: Oh my God. I love this question. Thank you for asking it. Um, that also has it's almost like the theme of um, the modern era. Like I did my research or do your own research. I did uh, a two part series on my website on um, the problem with doing your own research. But then once I did that, I realized people actually want to find information. And so I needed to answer that question and say, well, how to do your own research One of the things that I hear a lot from other science educators when um, asked about teaching science literacy, like how do you teach science literacy in your classes, is they will say, I teach my students to read primary literature. And it's great, students should see primary literature. They should know what that looks like. The problem is you have to know what you're looking at. You have to be a specialist in that particular area. My, my background, my graduate work was in um, fire ecology on the Great Plains and the, the succession of plants over time, the kinds of fire regimes that would result in different levels of plant diversity, I am not at all equipped to read uh, research on mRNA vaccines. So I can go to Google Scholar, like I can go to Google and I can type in whatever it is that I already believe in. I can find a study that says. Problem is, I don't know what I'm looking at. Um, my biases led me there. And I don't know if I'm seeing something that's been replicated, um, if their methodology was good, um, who disagrees with it, and why. I don't know the body of evidence around it. So I can, um, teaching students to go to the primary literature to answer those kinds of specific questions, to me, is Is dangerous. So, what I teach my students is um, the value of a scientific consensus. I previously stated that science is a community of experts. When those community, uh, when that community reaches a consensus on something, then that consensus is the best knowledge available to us at any given time. Could they be wrong? Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. But the chances that they're wrong versus me finding the right answer are very small. So. To teach my students, instead, if there is a scientific consensus, what is it and how to find it. So then I teach my students um, about meta analyses and systematic reviews, about position statements and consensus statements, about um, the kinds of uh, putting. Basically, w- what these do is they put together all of the evidence into. Um, uh, I, I liken it to pieces of a puzzle. Like any individual study is like a piece of a puzzle. But what does the puzzle look like? So those big picture things look at the bigger uh, puzzle if it's put together.
0: Okay. So let me get you to pause for a second, because you just said some terms that I wasn't familiar with in the world of science, right? Like I didn't learn this stuff in school. And uh, what was it? Did you say meta-analysis I've heard or something like that? What was the term?
2: Yeah. Meta-analysis and systematic reviews. Basically, those are studies of studies. So it's a form of research where um, um, experts will go to the research for a particular question. They will um, um, put together all of the studies on that particular question and combine them in various ways. Uh, The problem is that there can be garbage meta-analyses and systematic reviews. So garbage in equals garbage out. So just because it's a meta-analysis or systematic review does not mean it's a good one. But assuming that it is, then um, what they've done is they've put together the pieces so that if all of those questions, um, all of those studies point to a similar answer, the lines of evidence are converging on something, then that is more reliable than any individual study.
0: Okay, so where does one find that? And more importantly, at what age... Do you think we could teach kids about that? Like, is that a high school thing or is that something that hey, it's really not that complex? Here's how you do it. I could teach a middle schooler.
2: I think we could teach middle schoolers that uh, if we're teaching them the process of science, this is the process of science. This is how science grows over time. And so teaching them the different kinds of studies, what we do right now is we teach them, here's how to design a study. And it's usually a controlled study. Mm-hmm. And often if it's on people, it's a randomized control trial and that's great, but not all science looks that way. But if we can do that, we can also teach them what other studies look like. And then we can help them understand what happens when we put those things together into something else. Also, this this idea of relying on primary literature, even meta-analysis and systematic reviews, I mean, it's great and all, but if you're not an expert in that particular area, even that might be confusing. So there's excellent secondary and tertiary literature. Um, Naomi Oreskes has written books. They're phenomenal, right? They're not less reliable because they're not primary literature. So teaching them the different kinds of literature and where to find the um, the most reliable that helps you address the the questions that you have.
0: If you if you went and asked, I don't know, any kid who just a it or a high school graduate, somebody who just graduates, and you start kind of having this conversation of, I guess we can call it scientific literacy. Um, do you think? that they have an understanding of what you're talking about right now and what you've been talking about for the past five minutes or so? Or do you think that's almost like would sound great to them?
2: If the students coming to me are any represent or representative, then I would say they have no idea. Right.
0: And so it's like, how do we, you know, back to kind of like full circle when we started this conversation, I mean, how do we change that mindset to think more scientifically literate um, how do we get there rather than just reading out of a textbook I mean how do you go against that grain and, and push back against what the K through12 textbook says you're supposed to teach in school
2: yeah so this would um, I I'm very privileged in this regard in that um, I was teaching a class that um, had frustrated me for I don't know, for like 15 years. And I thought this is just, if I was gonna give um, teach the average student what they needed to know about science in a single semester, what would it look like? And it was not that. So I started all over and I created something else, um, but I had the luxury of doing that. What I will say is that, um, One of the most important things I learned in this process is that when we start science classes, even with the scientific method, which again is not accurate, but if I start class with the scientific method, the students don't understand why we need science. So um, I actually spend like the first third of my class teaching students about how we come to our beliefs. About the limits of our perception and memory, why their personal experiences aren't reliable, um, why um, how their biases can lead them astray, the kinds of logical fallacies that they tell themselves or hear from others. So when I teach them that, by the time I get to science and we start talking about how to collect. And evaluate evidence. How to design experiments to eliminate biases, to remove biases as much as possible. Why the scientific community is so important as opposed to an individual scientist. It all makes sense because I've laid that foundation. I've laid the groundwork. Again, I have the privilege to be able to do this. I I have done it, and I to me, it is far more efficient and um, effective. But if you have time in your classes to teach this to students, it is actually a shortcut. They will understand science better if you lay that.
0: Yeah, I I can see that. And it's almost like we should rename science class, not just science or biology or whatever. It should be like science and the art of critical thinking. (laughs) And it's like, at least 50% of what you're learning should be critical thinking. And then you kind of get into the science.
2: Yeah. And if I, um, just, from personal experience here, so I teach at a college, and uh, we are union in the state of Massachusetts. If you uh, teach a class in the sciences, you, by definition, are teaching critical thinking. That's good. Well, <laughs> the problem is, like, what I was doing before was categorized as critical thinking I thought I was teaching critical thinking it's science of course I'm teaching critical thinking I didn't realize I wasn't doing that until I threw the whole thing out and started over and in the process I actually learned what I didn't know I learned a like I've been through graduate school and I still didn't know some of this basic stuff So to me um we put a lot of this on science educators, um, but one of the first things I would I would ask science educators is, Um, Are you teaching critical thinking in your class? Which most people would say yes. What does that mean to you? And how are you teaching it? Because what I've learned is unless you can specifically define it and um, are specifically trying to teach that, it's probably not there. It can't be a byproduct of the curriculum. It has to be the center of the curriculum. And you're right. Science is the perfect place to put it. But I just know from experience, I wasn't doing it
0: what was your epiphany? Like, wh- when did you realize that you weren't doing it?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I actually, I, I remember when I realized I was failing my students. I had tried to teach intro bio a million different ways. I had used like half dozen textbooks and so on. And I re- it was near the end of the semester. I was teaching um, cell cycle and using cancer as the issue. Because, of course, I was helping students in my mind understand how cancer worked by teaching them the biology behind it. And I looked out at my students and they just, <laughs> I'd say they look like deer in headlights. I was like, what mm-hmm. is this? And they looked defeated. And I knew they were taking the class because they had to, again, air quotes. They weren't there because they wanted to be. They were there because it was a requirement for them. And they were going to remember what they could, regurgitate it on an exam, and then leave class, forget it. And then, probably hate science just as much as they hated it coming into me. And I think back about those students right now. I mean, this was pre-pandemic, and I wonder if they had cancer in their lives today. Uh, is what I taught them? Do they even remember it? And if they remember it, was it is that useful to them? Is that what they needed to know? And I, I just honestly feel like I failed them. So that was my, my epiphany, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. And that's when I went to the department and I said, why do we teach science classes to non-majors? Well, it's because it's science literacy and critical thinking. Okay, are the classes we're teaching them meeting those objectives? And I made the case that Interbio was not. So to their credit, they allowed me to take that off the books. And I replaced it with a course that was designed to teach what I call skills, not facts. So critical thinking, information, literacy, and science literacy. But in that process of creating the course is when I realized how much I did not know.
0: Okay. So you just mentioned skills, not facts. I know that's like a big um, article on your website, thinkingispower.com. Kind of tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so the takeaway is that the skills are more important than the facts. Facts are important, of course, and the skills help students learn those facts. But facts are forgettable. Facts can change. And so understanding how to th- how knowledge is, is produced and how to find it and use it to make better decisions is more important. Those are the kinds of skills that students can take with them that are empowering. So the skills not facts approach, I, I boil it down to th- what I call three skills, critical thinking, information literacy, and science literacy. And it is in that order um, that um, I find is a better way to teach students about how science works.
0: Okay, so let's dive into information literacy real quick. Uh, give me kind of your take on that.
2: Let me back up for a second and say... To teach these skills, one of the things that I do is I use misinformation. I bring in pseudoscience and fake news and conspiracy theories and science and so on. Because if I don't teach students what information that's not reliable looks like, then it's difficult to recognize the good stuff. So, um, but the reason that we fall for those things are because of our own biases. Pseudoscience works because we want to believe So we have a low standard of evidence. Science denial works because we don't want to believe. And so we set an impossibly high standard of evidence. But both of those boil down to our biases again. So if I want to find good information, I do my own research. I go to Google. I type in um, climate change is a hoax. And I find what I'm looking for. It's not what we know, but it's what I ask Google. So when I teach students about the process of science, I've taught them about the biases and um, thinking errors that can lead to them falling for that kind of misinformation. But the same thing is true about information in general. We spend a lot of time, um, if we try and teach students how to not fall for misinformation, then we need to teach them why they would fall for it in the first place. And that often involves like confirmation bias and their their emotional, um, being triggered emotionally. So the information literacy part comes after the critical thinking, because I want students to understand the kinds of um, biases that lead them to their information search, and then teach them how to find good information.
0: It's so important. And you talk about just like our future as a society. I feel like everything that you're talking about and the importance of teaching these kids is it almost even feels more important because when I was in school, I couldn't hop on TikTok and I wasn't bombarded with flat earther theories, right? Like, it was a lot harder to find that stuff. Um, and now I'm concerned if you accidentally stumble across one thing about the earth being flat, the next thing you know, you're, you're fed even more and more and more of it. Um, so what you're doing i feel like is so important and then throw an ai on top of that and all the misinformation that we might have shoved down our throat over the next five to 15 years it's it's frightening you know um so i appreciate everything you're doing here um again your website is thinkingaspower.com. melanie i gotta tell you i forgot to give you a heads up on this at the beginning of the show but typically with all of our guests um, we do a pop quiz where we ask seven educated related questions They're all the same questions for all of our guests. Are you okay with doing that?
2: Uh, sure. Oh, but now I'm pressure
0: So, uh, are you ready?
2: I mean, I suppose
0: <laughs> All right, first question if students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be?
2: Oh god, i'm biased, but i'm gonna say science.
0: What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching?
2: Critical thinking.
0: What does every child deserve?
2: An education
0: What's the biggest challenge for today's educators?
2: The misinformation environment that we all live in.
0: What's the best gift to give an educator?
2: To give an educator? Yes. If I was admin, I'd give them all the time that they need and support and not question them and burden them with all kinds of hoops they need to jump through and then I'd probably pay them what they deserve.
0: Which teacher changed your life?
2: My graduate professor, Tom Bragg. How so? He, um, so he's an ecologist and um, uh, he was my undergrad ecology professor as well. And I remember sitting in class thinking, holy beans, does this make sense to me? So ecology is the interactions between living things and their environment. And it's huge, like big picture of all these interacting things and this causes this change and so on. And my brain just loved it. It was like, um a way to make sense of all this complexity in this big picture systemic approach and he was such a wonderful professor he taught me to um he used to say write like you had to pay for every word that was words of wisdom i take with me and um he would always say, show me the evidence. Like anybody would make a claim and he'd be like, oh, that's great. Show me the evidence. So actually, I've actually made a T-shirt in his honor that says, show me the evidence. I was able to show it to him recently. It was super fun.
0: That's really cool.
2: Oh, and I'm sorry. We got to light prairies on fire together. And I, I mean, come on.
0: You, you lit prairies on fire to create some sort of ecological cascade, I guess, of some type?
2: Yeah, we were testing the different frequency and intensity of burns to see what the result was on the plant communities. Uh, And then there was a a prairie that the university managed, and we would burn it every few years. And man, it's fun to light things
0: on fire. (laughs) That's really cool. All right. (laughs)
2: Legally. Legally. (laughs) And
0: last question of the pop quiz Which book have you read, love, and want to recommend to our listeners?
2: Um, There's a lot, but I would say probably Adam Grant, think again. What's that about? Uh, so do you know who Adam Grant is?
0: Um, no, I don't.
2: Um, he is a, um, he's an economist, I think, but he does a lot of really great critical thinking books. And, um, it's such a great example. He does, he story tells and he talks about how it's important to think and what that looks like and thinking again and to question your assumptions and your biases by the way, I'm asked this question a lot, not in usually pop quiz form, uh, but people want to know my favorite resources. So I've compiled my favorite books and YouTube channels and podcasts and so on onto one of the tabs of my website called Resources, where I just want to send everybody to all of my favorite places.
0: Well, that's cool. Yeah, well, I'll be linking to the website in our show notes. So if anybody wants to track that down, but yeah, it's right up on the top there, it says Resources. Um well again Melanie uh it's been a pleasure chatting with you and again I appreciate everything you're doing. If somebody wants to track you down or anything, what's the best way to do that?
1: Uh probably through my
2: website thinking I'm on Facebook pretty regularly. I'm trying to build a YouTube channel and I'm on other social media platforms, but but probably my um my website. And I just want to say uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. I love science educators. You are my people. And I love working with educators. So please reach out to me. Ask me questions. I want to hear from you and talk to you.
0: Awesome. Thank you again so much, Melanie. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember, you can always email us at info at class or tweet us at dismiss.